Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name's Joshua. And I'm Grayson. The date is May 7th, 2018. And this is episode number 15, Double Jeopardy, Personal Preparedness for First Responders. In this episode, in honor of Emergency Preparedness Week, we'll be talking about the dual role of individual preparedness as it applies to disaster responders and some of the difficult decisions faced by those who are simultaneously victim and rescuer. To this end, we will be speaking with our good friend and fearless leader, Simon Bradley, who is in charge of a team that, uh, well, does exactly that. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current Relevant Canadian. Well, it is the most wonderful time of the year. That's right, it is Emergency Preparedness Week. A joyous time where response agencies and disaster managers dig out all their fancy toys that they haven't had a chance to play with for ages and show them off to the public to help promote awareness and disaster preparedness. And this year, the theme for the week is Be Disaster Ready. And as I began to think about this, it struck me that being disaster ready can mean very different things depending on what role you foresee yourself playing during a disaster. This, I think, is especially true for those who are expected to respond to disasters and not just react to them. Yeah, I think it's important to think about our role as emergency uh, management professionals. What sort of standard do we hold ourselves to for being prepared? And how do, we, uh, how do we actually do it? People talk a lot about leading by example, but how many emergency managers are actually ready. Uh, One survey um, that was presented at IEM recently showed that actually more disaster managers than you would think uh, aren't prepared and uh, about 40% didn't uh, have any sort of personal disaster preparedness kits or 72-hour kits or anything like that. So interesting question. If you're leading an organization, how do you know that your members are going to be ready to respond? And you know, although that stat is, is probably a little bit disappointing, it's not surprising. And a lot of the classic literature talks about this concept of role abandonment, whether it's out of fear or my thought is probably more to do with lack of preparedness. So the original role abandonment uh, research was done by Dines in the in the 60s and 70s, and he found almost no evidence of first responders abandoning their roles. Now, that was a long time ago. Uh, there was a, a more recent article in 2009 by uh, Mary Chaffee, uh, who looked at the willingness of healthcare personnel to work in a disaster and reviewed all of the literature c- she could find. And she found that you can expect upwards of 20 to 40 percent of staff to not come into work during a disaster simply because they're not prepared. And it's cast in a different light. You know, it talks about uh, the level of fear due to a chemical event versus a healthcare event. But how do you prepare someone for that? And what is the metric for that? I don't even know if the same standards would apply because you're not just preparing to be a victim. Because if you look at the preparedness kits, they're not preparing you to be a responder. They're not preparing you to do anything except survive and wait for help. And that is not the role of these responders. So how do you prepare to be a responder? Why don't we have a listen to your interview with Simon Bradley and find out. And a quick disclaimer before the interview, uh, both Josh and myself are members of Canada Task Force 2, uh, very proud members of Canada Task Force 2. Um, so here is Simon Bradley, our leader. 
Hi, my name is Simon Bradley, and I'm the team manager for Canada Task Force 2 Disaster Response Team based out of Calgary, Alberta. Simon, thanks so much for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about Canada Task Force 2? Well, first of all, thank you very much to you and Josh for having me on the show. I'm uh, a big fan, so it's an exciting opportunity to be a, uh, to be a guest. So well, um, Canada Task Force 2 is a disaster response team based out of Calgary. It's one of five heavy urban search and rescue teams across the country. And uh, our mandate is to respond to large-scale disasters, whether that be natural or man-made, and anywhere within Canada. Who makes up the membership of Canada Task Force 2? Canada Task Force 2 is a volunteer organization. So all of our training and our meetings and our exercises, it's all volunteer, and it's comprised of really an incredible collection of people. We have about 150 members on the team that come from a whole wide range of uh, specialties that they do in their day jobs, and they all come together to be part of Canada Task Force 2 when the need arises. So we have emergency room physicians, paramedics, rescue specialists who are firefighters in nine different departments across the province, uh, structural engineers, logistics specialists, emergency managers. It really is an incredible collection of people that come together when the call comes. What sort of disasters can you be called upon uh, to respond to. I know it's heavy urban search and rescue, but is that is that pretty much all your team does? No, and that's a great question. The The beginning of the team was heavy urban search and rescue. So large buildings collapsing and um, really the mandate has changed over the kind of 10 years of the program. And it's looking more at that all hazards disaster response. You know, the buildings don't fall down that often. So the skill sets that we have within our team are equally applicable in fires, floods, tornadoes, you know, anywhere else where it can be. And you look back at the history of the deployments the team's been involved with, uh, our team in Alberta, not one large-scale building collapse, actually. It's much more on that all-hazards portfolio. So it's, you know, the Fort McMurray wildfires, Slave Lake wildfires, Southern Alberta floods in Calgary and High River. So it's events like those that we seem to be seeing more of and seeing more of a call for. So the theme of this uh, Emergency Preparedness Week is be emergency ready. So with that in mind, how do you prepare an all-hazards team to respond to all sorts of disasters? And that's interesting, and it's a, it's a discussion we have very often between the five teams in the country, is what does all-hazards mean? And uh, Public Safety Canada has a good definition saying, you know, all hazards doesn't necessarily mean, mean being prepared for every type of disaster that can possibly happen. It's much more about having the processes in place and then being flexible and adaptable to what the situation may be. You know, the incident command system is just as valuable in a flood as it is in a fire, as it is in a building collapse. So it's focusing on some of those foundational elements and being able to apply it. And, and really, it comes down to getting the job done, depending on the needs of that incident. I like that you can't respond to everything, but you can respond to anything. That's right. I think that's a really good way to put it. And in terms of the individuals on the team, a lot of them, it sounds like, are volunteers from maybe other agencies or maybe aren't first responders at all. What sort of process from onboarding to their development does their preparedness activity or their preparedness learning curve take? No, and that's a, it's a very interesting collection of, of people. And, and, they, and they do, they come from all walks of life. Some of them are 
You know, emergency responders have been involved in some of the largest disasters in Canada over the last 10 years. And some of them are, you know, structural engineers that, you know, spend a lot of time, uh, you know, not responding to disasters. So we do spend a lot of time when we recruit new members, making sure we manage those expectations and, and let them know what they're possibly in for. And big part of that is we see this as not just an agreement between us and the member, but it's an agreement between their employer, their family, the member, and us. Um, our employers sign an agreement that when disaster strikes somewhere in Canada, they'll release the member for up to 14 days to be able to come and help respond. They see the value in the training and the exercises that they're bringing back. So they sign on and, and they're a partner in it. And then, of course, there's a big piece of it is the families. You know, they're being left at maybe a moment's notice at the drop of a hat and you know their family member can be gone for up to 14 days so it's it's those pieces that are the most difficult the stuff is easy we provide our members with everything they need basically on a deployment for up to 14 days all the uniforms the cots all the food while they're deployed everything like that so they don't have to worry too much on the the preparedness piece when it comes to items but it's definitely more on the the employer and the family side that we want to make sure we manage that expectation. Yeah, that makes sense. It's so easy to think of yourself as either a responder or a victim. Uh, and it sounds like you could very well be in, in the situation where you're both on this team. Well, and that was certainly the case for the 2013 floods, which, you know, the team's based out of Calgary. And Calgary was where the disaster happened. So there were members of the team that were personally impacted. Their communities were flooded. Their businesses were flooded. So it, it's one of those things we spend a lot of time talking about being prepared to respond to somewhere else. But 2013 was an interesting example of it was affecting us at home. Can you talk a little bit more about how you prepare the family? I think a big piece of it is awareness. You know, making sure that they really do understand that, you know, their, their family member it provides a tremendous skill and and that's why they're on the team and we're sending them in a community to to help and and make that situation better and a, a piece that we really focus on when we're deployed is what we call our backlink and it's making sure that we have communication with the family the whole time that they're uh, their family members deployed we may be going somewhere that doesn't have cell reception if you look at something like a Pine Lake tornado, uh, an Edmonton tornado, or you know like that inevitable event in Vancouver, um, there may not be cell service. They're not going to be able to FaceTime with their family every night. So we stand up our backlink. So we have members that stay at our base in Calgary, and their job is to communicate daily back to the the families and say, "This is what's going on. This is what your loved ones are up to. They're safe. These are pictures from the camp." And, and they're able to relay that. And they're also able to, to deal with any concerns that are coming up from the families. If they need some help, if they're struggling, we have members that are, that are back and are able to assist. That's fantastic. So providing support for the personal preparedness things really does help them be prepared to be responders, it sounds like. Absolutely. I think it's, it becomes that mindset. And once you're in it, uh, I, I think it changes the way you look at everything. So. So what about on a day-to-day -day basis? How do people keep up to date with uh, emerging disaster news? How do you maintain a, a roster of readily deployable people? How do you keep your team prepared? Uh, we spend a lot of time training and exercises. 
you know, it is, it's high impact, low frequency events that we're preparing for. So it's not like municipal fire department that's getting the calls all the time. So they're getting the, they're getting the, the, you know, they're building the practice of, you know, standing up command, executing command for us, you know, we're doing it on a very infrequent basis. So training and exercise is incredibly important and being able to look ahead at what, what hazards are out there, look at the hazardscape locally look at the hazardscape nationally and make sure we're exercising as many of those as possible. Make sure that this tabletop exercise is going to be about tornadoes, but the next one should be about how we can help out in an ice storm. Not a traditional HUSAR event, but it certainly fits within that all hazards portfolio. So it's just talking about it, making sure that the people are up on what those risks could possibly be and possibly what those responses will look like. Where can people find out more and how do they get involved? They can check out our website, cantf2.com, and uh, we also have a, uh, a Twitter page that uh, we keep pretty updated on all of the exercises and training that goes on, just cantf2 on uh, on Twitter. Awesome. Simon, thank you so much for joining us. Before you go, uh, in the spirit of Emergency Preparedness Week uh, and being emergency ready, I have some rapid-fire questions for you personally. All right. I'm ready. All right. What is one thing that listeners can do today to become more prepared? Oh, that is a good question. Uh, I I think it is having those conversations with your neighbors, with your family. It's preparing to not necessarily be a victim in a uh, in a disaster that affects your community. Have those relationships with your neighbors ahead of time. Have those conversations so that it's, you know, the floodwaters aren't rising or the fire isn't coming. And that's when you're trying to make introductions. I like that. Just have a, a casual conversational tabletop exercise with your neighbor. That's great. Absolutely. Uh, what are the three preparedness items that you would never leave the house without or never deploy without, let's say? Well, deployment, that's a tough question. I have a very robust go bag when it comes <laughs> to uh, deployment. Uh, it's a couple duffel bags and a couple Pelican cases because... It's not just responding to an EOC. It could be responding to a tent in the middle of a field. Um, I, you know, a, a couple things that I have definitely added, phone chargers, chargers oh, for everything, and uh, and mobile battery packs. And for me, gummy bears. Ah, good call. Good call. And then final question. It's a cheesy one. What does being emergency ready mean to you? As I said, the stuff is easy. The 72-hour kit's important. Um, you know, having flashlights, that's important. But it's about the relationships. It's having those conversations with with your neighbors, with your friends, your family, and, and being – it's those relationships that you're going to have to draw on in a disaster. So have those relationships in place. Simon, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for all that you do. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, sounds like you had a great uh, conversation there, Grayson. I, I think the uh, idea of a neighborhood tabletop exercise might catch on. <laughs> yeah, I, re- I really like that one. And talking to Simon, I, I began to remember my experiences as I joined Canada Task Force 2 and trying to get that permission from my employers and from my family was actually a really valuable process. Having that conversation, which I'd never had before, with especially with my family, uh, about the possibility of deploying and what that actually would mean, not for the job that I was doing, because that was pretty much taken care of, but for the people that you are leaving behind, potentially in a disaster zone. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. It's pretty hard to be focusing on the job at hand if you're worried about your your loved ones or your family. So I take it as a uh, professional responsibility to hold myself to a higher preparedness standard. And Oh, really? Uh, so Josh, do tell. Do you have a 72-hour preparedness kit? I have a 1,000-hour preparedness kit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah, I I mean, over the years, I've definitely added to my personal supply uh, cash. Now, I definitely don't want to brand myself as a prepper. (laughs) uh, I don't have a fallout shelter in my basement. But, um, yeah, I've got, uh, we've got, you know, copies of all of our... uh, um, important documents. We do have, uh, you know, a good supply of, of canned goods and everything, you know, that you see in the typical kind of 72-hour uh, preparedness kits. But I think most importantly, we have a plan and we've kind of discussed ahead of time about who's doing what um, and kind of made that mental leap to planning for uh, me not being here uh, if there was a uh, if there was an issue and, and making sure that the rest of the family is, is taken care of. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm pretty much the same way. I, I think I have a preparedness kit for every bag that I own. Uh, however, I don't know if that actually makes me prepared in, in the same way. I I could survive. Whoever was had access to my my kits could certainly survive, but I don't know if I'd be prepared for the recovery phase. For example, I don't know that I'd be able to seamlessly transition from responder back to my my everyday job without taking a little bit of time. So I think there's probably more that I could be doing anyways uh, in terms of individual preparedness. And I think it's a great segue for our upcoming debate. Uh, Grayson and I are going to have another epic debate, and we're going to debate the merits of this classic teaching of the 72-hour emergency kit. Does it actually make you any more prepared, and and what's the evidence behind it? Yeah, so stay tuned. And for every single day of Emergency Preparedness Week, we will be coming out with a podcast. And as you listen to them, we'd love to hear your feedback. In fact, so much so that if you send us your feedback via tweet or email, uh, as well as a picture of your emergency response kit, we will be entering you for a chance to win some epic podcast merchandise. (laughs) That's right. So you can get your very own coveted epic podcast mug. Just send us a tweet of your personal disaster preparedness kit and uh, show us how you're prepared and we will enter you in the draw. And looking forward to sending out some mugs uh, across the country. And just before we end the episode, we'd like to point you towards the tool of the trade, the definitive tool of the trade for Emergency Preparedness Week, which is the Government of Canada Emergency Preparedness Week website. Just Google Emergency Preparedness Week 2018 and it'll take you to a website with a myriad of useful resources from your pocket guide to emergencies uh, to three steps to emergency preparedness. The main driver is know the risks, make a plan, and get a kit and you can find out everything you need to do those three things on this website. Definitely check it out and make sure that you are prepared. That's right. Well, happy EP week to everybody. And we don't normally get to say this, but we will see you again tomorrow. So prepare for that. (laughs) Excellent. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of IAEM Canada, the International Association of Emergency Managers. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not in any way represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, 
visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter by searching Epic Podcast. And finally, a big thank you to all of our contributors and to you, our listeners. Please stay tuned for the next episode of Epic Podcast. Current. Relevant. Canadian.